Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Dan Kilbride, and I am the host of New Books in American Studies. And every week or so, that means we interview an author on uh, on the field of, uh, in this case, usually history, but also uh, American public health, architecture, art, and so on. Today, I am very excited to be joined by Erskine Clark. We're going to be talking about his book, By the Rivers of Water, which is about American missionaries in Africa in the first half of the 19th century, which has just been published by Basic Books. Uh, Erskine Clark is Professor Emeritus of American Religious History at Columbia Theological Seminary. He is also the author of A Dwelling Place, a Plantation Epic, which was published by Yale University Press in 2005, and won a whole bunch of awards, uh, most importantly, the Bancroft Prize, which is the big dog in American history. Um, And he's also the publisher of a number of other books, uh, specifically on American and Southern religious history. Professor Clark, welcome to New Books in American Studies. Thank you. Delighted to be in conversation with you. What can you tell us? What, what do we need to know about you and specifically what brought you to this book? Well, I think the main thing that you need to know about me is um, what you've said, that I'm Professor Emeritus of American Religious History at uh, Columbia Theological Seminary in Atlanta. And the uh, primary focus of my scholarly interest has been the American South, particularly the antebellum period. And uh the role of religious uh, belief, religious life in um, in the American South during that during that period, especially in relationship to slavery. So I have um, I have tried to understand the complex uh, relationship between religious belief and um, the social and cultural context in which um, Southerners, both uh, white and black. Um, <clears throat> Uh, lived out their lives during this uh, period. And how did you come across uh, John Leighton Wilson and Jane Bayard Wilson? Well, uh, I grew up in South Carolina, which is uh, John Leighton Wilson's, it was his his home state. Mm -hmm. And uh, he he was known there among people who remembered him. And actually, there are a lot of uh, people uh, over several generations who have carried his name because of the uh, respect that uh, people had for him. And um, so I knew about him for a long time, and I was uh, particularly intrigued by the fact that he and his wife uh, freed their slaves. Uh, they inherited, they had inherited a number of slaves, and the fact that they freed them uh, as uh as part of this uh, commitment to going to uh, West Africa uh, as um, as missionaries, and that stood in such uh, contrast to most of the other uh, people that I had studied who uh, tried other ways to uh, deal with the question of slavery. Mm-hmm. So I was intrigued by that, and I, uh, the more I learned about him, uh, and learned about her with her own um, important uh, role in this uh, 
this decision making about freeing slaves and about uh, you mm-hmm. know, life and work in West Africa, the more intrigued I became. The title of your book, uh, By the Rivers of Water, comes from uh, Psalm 1, uh, and the, the passage is, And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth fruit in his season. Uh, I'm just intrigued. Uh, why did you choose that passage for your title? Well, uh, <laughs> choosing a title for a book is not always very easy. At least it's not been in my <laughs> experience. And so you're in. Uh, I was in a conversation with a publisher about this, and we were looking for a variety, looking at a variety of possibilities. And because rivers played such uh, an important part in the lives of both um, both this couple and also of the slaves uh, that that are whose lives are followed, and also once they arrived in uh, West Africa, especially in Gabon, the uh, importance of rivers uh, there. So mm-hmm. um, there was a way in which um, their lives were lived out by. Uh, these uh, rivers of water uh, from uh, the Savannah River to um, the Black River in South Carolina uh, to these West African rivers. Mm-hmm. Uh, why don't you provide, just so our listeners can have some kind of context, just give us some background about uh, Leighton, uh, as he was known, I, I take it, and uh, and Jane Bayard Wilson. Um you know, where, what, what was what was their family and personal backgrounds, and specifically, what made them want to be missionaries, and especially missionaries in Africa? Right. Well, both of them came from affluent uh, families, white uh, Southern families, and she came from a particularly affluent family uh, that had deep roots as well in um, in the North, especially in Pennsylvania, but also in um, in New Jersey and, and New York, and uh, Delaware, too, for that matter. Um, she grew up in Savannah. Uh, her, her father was a physician there. Her mother was the daughter of a, a Revolutionary War general, uh, a, a, a lieutenant general, a Major uh, a Lieutenant General uh, Lachlan McIntosh. And uh, so she grew up... Uh, the first part of her life in Savannah, going back and forth between Savannah and um, some family plantations uh, south of Savannah, down what is today the intercoastal waterway. Mm-hmm. And um, her parents died when she was young, and uh, she went to live. She and her sister went to live with uh, their uncle in Philadelphia, a very wealthy uh, Philadelphia banker. And so they spent um, some years in Philadelphia in in the home of uh, this banker and in the context of a very um, a traditional uh, Presbyterian, Philadelphia Presbyterians and with their strong connections with Princeton, um, uh, that whole stretch of the Middle States. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Leighton Wilson uh, grew up in a family that uh, traced its ancestry back uh, to the arrival in Charleston, South Carolina, in uh, the 1730s of a group of uh, Scottish and Scotch-Irish immigrants who were given um, land by the colonial government of the Black River, which is called Black because of the... um, of that uh, the cypress trees, um, oh. the way the cypress trees uh, stain uh, the river. Uh, and each generation of, uh, of these uh, settlers moved a little further up the river. So um, uh, by the time uh, Leighton Wilson was born and was growing up, settlements had become increasingly prosperous, and during his youth, uh, with uh, the spread of cotton inland uh, and the invention of the cotton gin that allowed for the short staple cotton to be grown in profitable ways, um, these farms were turning into very profitable 
plantations as they uh, drew on the labors and and sorrows of increasingly large numbers of black slaves who were uh, who were um, first brought in from from Charleston. So he grew up in a very tight uh, family, uh, surrounded by many aunts and uncles and cousins, and um, of these Scottish, uh, Scotch-Irish Presbyterians there on this uh, Black River. He grew up with the slave settlement uh, right there below the plantation house mm-hmm. where he lived, and um, was uh, surrounded by increasing numbers of black um, slaves who did the hard labor of a plantation. Mm-hmm. Now, one question that I kept asking myself as I read this book was why would anybody in their right minds in this era mm-hmm. want to be a missionary in Africa? Yeah. And I, specifically, this poor guy, or I should say his, this guy, the poor wives of this guy named William Walker. Yes. Uh, you know, going to Africa was just a slight exaggeration to call it almost a death sentence. Yes. Uh, in, in addition to the sheer distance of that these people are going to be from, from home, what made these very privileged, if devout people like the Wilsons, like William Walker and his wives, uh, none of whom survived very long in Africa. Yes. What, what made them, what impelled them? Yes. To become missionaries in Africa. Right. Well, that's uh, <clears throat> that's an important question. I think what you've just described, uh, it needs to be said that uh, what was particularly deadly for them was malaria. And um, they were especially, uh, whites were especially susceptible to uh, malaria. Uh, Africans and people of African descent have uh, developed over the millennia, really, um, some uh, resistance uh, mm-hmm. to malaria, but whites have, because of long exposure, and the sickle cell is a result of, of that. But whites uh, <clears throat> were particularly vulnerable, so you're right. To go to Africa did seem um, suicidal, and uh, that is what many people said uh, to the Wilsons and right. the, the others. Why, why are you doing this? Uh, as uh, any um, action like this, I think you you um, are able to identify mixed motives. Uh, that is, um, I don't mean mixed motives in a negative way, but right. motives mm-hmm. that spring from different sources. Uh, the most uh, obvious and uh, powerful source was uh, the Second Great Awakening, uh, this huge uh, revival that swept across the country. Uh, during uh, the early decades of the 19th century and the kind of evangelical uh, commitments that it stirred. And as a part of that, there was a, really for the first time, uh, a concerted uh, Protestant uh, missionary effort. Roman Catholics had been involved in missionary effort for long, long time, but for a variety right. of reasons, uh, Protestants had not been, and um, there had been some, but not much. Uh, this um, this uh, great evangelical awakening that was um, also in Great Britain and on the continent, uh, the European continent with pietism and other uh, religious movements, so it was transatlantic uh, religious revival. This This revival stirred in people uh, a sense of responsibility for evangelization, and the mission movement itself, as I said, emerged out of that. And they simply, the Wilsons and uh, and the other missionaries that uh, went out, uh, felt uh, a deep sense of calling, uh, vocation to um, to bring a Christian message to people who did not know it. They thought that the Christian message was a uh, message that all people needed to uh, have available to them to be able to hear. And um, they thought that um, 
such a message was vital, uh, not only for their eternal salvation, which obviously they thought, so um, mm-hmm. also for their um, well-being in in, uh, in this world. So it had that strong kind of uh, evangelical commitment that was right. part of it. Now, <clears throat> for the Wilsons, one of the very interesting things was that they felt a special responsibility for Africa because of what had been done to Africans with the international slave trade mm-hmm. and the fact that white Southerners were the primary ones in the U.S. who had uh, benefited uh, from that. And so as white Southerners, there was a, um, a sense of obligation uh, to Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a part of um, of their going. Right. Uh, the, the Wilsons were traveling, uh, and other missionaries, uh, at a time when Americans knew comparatively little about Africa. You know, and, and one thing the Wilsons do in their periodic uh, trips back to the States is try to inform uh, Americans, including their own families and, and social circles, about Africa, and they end up challenging many assumptions about Africa. Uh, what did Americans at this time think that they knew about Africa? Well, um, I would say uh, Americans and uh, Europeans generally uh, knew uh, very little about Africa, and and the little that they knew was cast primarily in terms of stereotypes. Mm-hmm. So it was dark Africa. It was um, it was a place of, um, of savages. It was uh, a dangerous place. It was also a place of um, uh, of, of of wealth that could be extracted um, in a variety of ways, but most specifically in terms of people. Uh, mm-hmm. That is uh, by um, the international slave trade. The international slave trade had been made illegal in the U.S. and in by Great Britain in um, 1808. So slaves could no longer be legally brought into the U.S. After 1808, there were a few mm-hmm. slave ships that came in, but um, secretly, say, to the islands uh, off of the coast of Georgia, but by and large, the massive importation of slaves into the into um, into uh, South was uh, had had been ended. So Americans Americans image the image of whites. Just let me put it that way of uh, of Africa was um, was again mixed. It it was a dark continent. It was also exotic. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, it was strange and different, and and therefore intriguing. People were quite intrigued by what was in Africa, especially what was beyond the uh, coastline. Right. Mm-hmm. What was what lay on the other side of the mountains of the moon, for example? This uh, string of mountains that White mm-hmm. saw extended down the coast. Um, <clears throat> so there was that sense of um, intrigue. But uh, I think most uh, pressing and and important for this story and really for the story, the long story of um, White's White's, uh, images of Africa was uh, that Africans were not only savages, but increasingly in the 19th century, they were regarded with the rise of uh, scientific racism they were regarded as um, really lesser people, people with less intelligence, so less um, capabilities of civilized life and so on. So there was resistance to the mission movement mm-hmm. because some said, uh, well, why are you going to Africa when Africans can't really become Christians? I mean, mm-hmm. they don't have the capacity. That was a part of this deep, deep, Racism that was there, and 
So a big part of what the Wilsons did in their uh, mission work and and relationship, <coughs> excuse me, in their relationship to um, uh, their, uh, the American uh, scene was to write and say, hey, no, this is not right. There's mm-hmm. one particular uh, part of that where they describe uh, how quickly African children could learn English and the other uh, things that they were teaching in the schools, uh, from math to geography. They even had a telescope where they were looking at the stars and the moon and so on. Uh, and in fact, there was one letter that uh, was particularly important, I thought, uh, that was written to this group of planters, uh, very wealthy planters immediately south of Charleston, um, mm-hmm. on John's Island. And they said, uh, we know that there's this general idea that Africans are stupid. But you would not think so if you could come to this school and see how smart these children are and how quickly they have mastered um, uh, another language, how quickly they've become bilingual, mm-hmm. really. And so they go on like that. So there are a variety of ways in which they try to um, tell the story of Africa uh, by um, saying uh, these people that we are encountering are fully human and fully capable um, as as whites are and other races are. Mm -hmm. One of the most important ways um, that they that Leighton Wilson did that was a book that he published yeah. in 1856 called Western Africa, and in that book, it's quite a sophisticated book, really. Um, in that book, he 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 starts off by saying that Africans are that they're, they're different kind of Africans; they're not all just alike. Mm-hmm. Like Europeans, mm-hmm. not the the um, Italians are not just like the Swedes <laughs> and so on. Uh, the Poles are not just like uh, the Spanish, and so he he distinguishes between different groups and he talks about language. He's he's quite a linguist himself. Yes, he is very very careful linguist. Um, and it, but one of the things is, is he talks uh, and and goes into great detail about the great civilizations of West Africa and what they had accomplished. Now, he's horrified by some aspects of West Africa. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. But he he also is, um, he's also deeply impressed by the richness of the culture and um, by the people that he is encountering. And he tries to convey that in his writings. Mm-hmm. You know, it did remind me of uh, I've been doing some work on David Livingston, and it, you know, the great uh, Scottish explorer, and it remind his Leighton's perspective on Africans reminded me very strongly of Livingston's uh, sympathy and and respect for African cultures, even though he felt that Christianization would entail the destruction of those cultures, which he was uh, he was resigned to for the sake of salvation. But he he did deeply respect African peoples. Do you have the impression that the Wilsons' advocacy on behalf of Africans in the United States to these planters, and also the the letters they wrote and were published in the in the missionary magazines, did they make an did they make a difference in Americans' perceptions of Africa and Africans, or did it mostly yeah. just? Yeah, I don't. I, I wouldn't want certainly to exaggerate in any way the um, the impact of that because the other that is the stereotypes not only lingered but as the 19th century went on and there was uh, this growing as I said uh, uh, scientific racism. Mm-hmm. Uh, based increasingly on uh, Darwin and uh, some distortions, really, of Darwin, but nevertheless, like the level of the fittest and, and so on, um, this uh, this very uh, harsh kind of of uh, 
scientific racism gained ground as the 19th century proceeded, and we know the very bitter um, results of it with uh, the rise of uh, the Nazis in um, in Germany. Yeah. But <clears throat> on the other hand, um, having said that, it's true that um, among some, it made a difference. Um, this earlier book of mine that uh, you mentioned, um, Dwelling Place, a plantation epic, uh, Wilson's letters uh, were published in uh, religious journals. And one of the mm-hmm. things that the plantation owners in this particular part of Georgia did was they read those letters on Sunday afternoon to slaves hmm. who, who were gathered for, it was a part, it was like a kind of Sunday school time. And um, by actually reading those letters, it's a very interesting, I think, uh, dynamic that's involved in there. By actually reading those letters, it, 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 it at least had the potential not only of changing the way in which um, whites viewed Africans, but strengthening uh, memories, uh, oral memories of slaves about uh, about Africa and their hmm. their um, their hearing of of these students who were so smart and who were being taught to read and they couldn't be taught to read. Yeah, slaves, right. These American slaves couldn't be taught to read. Or hearing about a particularly brilliant um, Mpangwe trader, this Mantoko, that the Wilsons admired so much uh, down in Gabon. And and uh, that it, it, it helped to say, you know, that being black doesn't mean necessarily being a slave. There are other mm-hmm. possibilities if... Yeah. possibility of freedom. So, I, again, I say I don't want to uh, exaggerate uh, uh, the impact of these letters, sure. how, how, how widely they were read. Uh, I certainly don't want to exaggerate that. But nevertheless, mm-hmm. I do think in different places and the different circumstance and in, in different kinds of circumstances, they did have an impact on, on some whites and uh, on the slaves who also were able to hear those letters. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the the Wilsons and and other missionaries were uh, greeted uh, very warmly by uh, African the, the two uh, groups that they encountered the two different places. Uh, is it the, the, the Grebo? Is that am I pronouncing that correctly? Uh, yes, Grebo. Mm-hmm. Grebo and uh, the Mokambwe um, greeted them quite warmly. But interestingly. Uh, the people who did not greet the missionaries warmly were the colonizationists, uh, American settlers in Africa who are not missionaries. And I, I wondered if you could, first of all, talk about the Africans. Um, why did uh, Africans, uh, these peoples, uh, greet the Wilsons and other missionaries uh, so warmly? Well, um, again, I would say there were um, mixed reasons uh, for that. Uh, One reason was that in the particular African uh, cultures where the Wilsons were located, both among the the, uh, Grebo and the Mapangwe, uh, there was a tradition of hospitality. Mm -hmm. So... um, that played its that played a role. They also knew that whites came to their shores in large ships with lots of stuff <laughs> and stuff that they wanted that Africans wanted, and right. so they went. They in fact had been for generations engaged in trade with merchants who would bring a wide variety of. Uh, products from um, not only from the West, incidentally, but also, say, from India, right. like mm-hmm. cottons mm-hmm. And, and cloth. They, they were particularly interested in um, certain kinds of Indian textiles that were, it's part of this really global 
economy that was already going on. Yeah. Um, so there was uh, there was the cultural thing of hospitality. There was um, the economic aspect of of uh, well the missionaries being here um, will encourage trade and and so on. It was also um, I think wonderment about what what is it about whites that has allowed them to um, have all this stuff on these ships right and to have these big ships what is it about white culture that has been able to produce uh, uh, all of these different goods and to um, build these big ships so there was there was interest in um, in what was behind to say it most simply white power mm-hmm. and white affluence that uh, could be seen with these ships that came uh, sailing up and down uh, down the coast so one of the things that they identified very quickly was um, the importance of literacy and learning to read and write. Mm-hmm. So, um, both among the Grebo and among the Mapangwe, there was an eagerness to have their children educated in the missionary schools. And um, there was the hope that by learning to um, read and write, some of the power some of the affluence that they saw that whites had, that um, they could they could begin to acquire themselves, mm-hmm. and uh, with that was a among some at any rate a curiosity about a wider and what would to them was exotic world, the world right. of Europe mm-hmm. and America in particular. So all of those things came together to that that made uh, um, the mission schools very, very popular among among the um, uh, people at Cape Palmas, where the Grebo were, and then mm-hmm. the Estuary. Um, I think one of the really interesting things about this is um, they were not particularly um, interested in having their... In fact, they resisted having their... At least some of them began to be uh, converted. Uh, as, as I'm sorry, Professor Clark. There was some there was some chop in the in the connection there, just for about the last ten seconds. Oh, okay. Uh, I, I'm not sure it's, it came through. Can you just repeat what you were uh, what you were just saying about the Graybo? Uh, well, I was saying that they um, the Graybo were interested in having their children educated. Yeah, they were not particularly, and most of them were not particularly interested. In fact, resisted um, having their children converted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, <clears throat> but some of the children, uh, in fact, were converted, and a few and adults began to be converted too. Not in the number yeah. that the children were, but uh, adults were as well. A part of what I think is really intriguing about this at a, at a lot of different levels, but one is um, the sense that in order to move into the Western world or to be modern, to utilize a, a, perhaps a simpler way of describing it, uh, they knew they had to become acculturated in some way mm-hmm. to Western mm-hmm. ways. And Western and and particularly Western literacy and and the sciences of the West, and yet they wanted to keep many of them uh, wanted to keep uh, the traditions of their people, mm-hmm. and so there's this deep deep tension that is there between. Um, wanting to be westernized, as it were, and at the same time not wanting uh, to give up 
the traditions of that. And that is a that is a huge tension that you see. Yes. Um, that you see there, and it's really a worldwide phenomenon, and um, plays out in different, including the U.S. I mean, mm-hmm. it's played out in um, in different different ways. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's certainly an important uh, part. The other thing is. Uh, <clears throat> That Africans, uh, and I'll just say, I'll say now, just uh, talk about the gray boat. Among other things, they had the capacity to be skeptical, just like whites had the capacity to be skeptical about their own religious traditions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so um, this one man who was uh, the brother of the king, uh, King Freeman at Cape Palmas, uh, Maury Ma, uh, who had the English uh, uh, Davis, uh, and he was a particularly um, brilliant person. Uh, spoke a number of languages and, and so on, and was highly respected within the Grebo community. Um, uh, he he becomes uh, he becomes a Christian. It's a long process. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, but he he becomes a Christian. And what's interesting about that, and I think this is really um, one of the important things of understanding what's happened to Africa in the 20th century, is that he didn't become a Georgia Christian or a South Carolina Christian. Yeah. <laughs> he became a, uh, a Grebo Christian. That is, he took with him into his Christianity uh those voices from his that he had from his earliest childhood, mm-hmm. Grebo, uh, the very language itself, the Grebo language itself, um, he took that with him into uh, Christianity. He also took uh, four wives, uh, in which was <laughs> right. um, uh, one of the tensions, but uh, the missionaries worked that out. They said, you know, that. Uh, he was not to have any other wives, but those four, and if you broke up a family <laughs> like that, it would be a terrible thing, and so on. Right. So, um, but he really, he really becomes a um, a great boat Christian, and I think that's that is very, very important to acknowledge. He was the translator, actually, and teacher of John Layton Wilson when Wilson arrived. He's the one yeah. who taught Wilson um, not only the Grebo language, but also was one who helped Wilson to interpret what Wilson was observing around him in this culture. Um, what does it mean? What does this funeral, Grebo funeral, mean? What's going on there? Those kinds of cultural questions. Uh, William Davis was the primary interpreter yeah. for Wilson. So uh, when Wilson Wilson writes the first, um, he, he develops the, the first uh, alphabet for the gray boat that fits with the gray boat uh, language, and he writes first grammar and book and uh, dictionary and so on with the with the gray boat. When he comes to the task of translating in the New Testament se- sections from the New Testament, he has to depend on a Grebo to help him with that. Right. Say the word God. Yeah. What Grebo word can he use if he is um, translating, uh, say, the Gospel of John? Right, exactly, yes. What what (laughs) Grebo word can he use? And he has to be in conversation with Grebo about that. And with, with, um, it's a very tricky thing. Yep. Can you use the name of a Grebo god, or do you? Is there something else that you can, that some other word that you can use, or what does it mean to talk about light and darkness, as the Gospel yeah. of John talks about light and darkness? Well, what does that mean? What does light mean to the Grebo, and what does this mean? So the point I want to make is two points really about this translation. Uh, the first point is that it was a joint effort. It was uh, 
that that Wilson and the other missionaries who came later and who were working in trans couldn't just they didn't just translate this on their own. They mm-hmm. had to have interpreters yes. who were directing and guiding them. That is native speakers who were deeply a part of that culture, who were guiding them and mm-hmm. making decisions about well, what Grebo word do we use for God? Awful light of a darkness. The second thing is, um, once he had translated uh, these different books of, of uh, the Gospels in particular, and also the book of Acts, they were quite interested in the book of Acts for a variety mm-hmm. of reasons, um, with a lot of healing stories in it, and um, other stories that were quite interesting for, for the Grebo. Uh, but once they translated that, the missionaries, and they printed them, and there was this African-American printer who was a part of the mission there, um, BVR James, who was um, this very skilled printer, and he printed just thousands of pages of text. And when he printed the Grebo, the parts of the Grebo New Testament, the missionaries no longer had control over that. Because the Grebo could take mm-hmm. and read it themselves and interpret it themselves about, well, what is, the, what is Christianity about? And if the missionary mm-hmm. said one thing, the Grebo would say, well, it says here this. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think you're right, uh, because it says in the Gospel of John, thus and so. So <clears throat> uh, Christianity, as it develops in Africa, really, and it's this amazing uh, development that takes place there in the 20th century. The growth of Christianity in Africa has been um, really one of the most amazing things in Christianity. Uh, From uh, something like 9 million Christians Mm -hmm. below the Sahara at the um, beginning of the 20th century to it's approaching 600 million now. Oh my. So it's just uh, phenomenal. And most of that evangelization has been done, not by the missionaries, but by Africans themselves. And that was their intention, right? They saw themselves as sort of a vanguard, but they they, they envisioned educating Africans who would then evangelize Africa. Right. Right, yeah. That was the the early mission um, vision, that uh, there would... They would evangelize Africans, and that there would be an African church run by Africans and um, supported by Africans, and so on. Now, it is true that later missionaries, that especially again thinking of this uh, growing uh, scientific racism and the way in which that spread throughout the culture, later missionaries were much more paternalistic. And so you have these images in the early part of the 20th century. I mean, these not images, these stories of um, <laughs> a very patronizing mm. uh, missionaries who are going to say, well, we know that Africans can't really handle the finances of this, so we have to continue to handle the finances. Mm. Or, or we know that Africans really are not going to be able to um, be... Uh, the primary interpreters of the Gospel of John. We have to continue to interpret for them, and the Africans are going. The Africans are going to resist that, and um, and so that's the part of the. That's a big part of the story. Is the way the Africans claim, the African Christians claim their own, um, independence from the yeah. missionaries, and it's changed a good bit in recent decades where they are. This missionaries are much more likely to be in a cooperative uh, mm-hmm. uh, and invited by the churches in this these different African countries. But all of that goes back uh, to um, the fact that one, the translations were 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 joint efforts of missionaries and Africans themselves, and two, once the once the these primary documents, these primary books of Christian faith were translated, then the Africans uh, claimed them for themselves. It's now mm-hmm. in Gribo 
a grebo. Right. It's now a. It's now in my language, and I can I, I can read it myself. <laughs> yeah. The other book that you mentioned Africans were particularly drawn to besides Acts was Matthew. Correct. What was it about the Gospel of Matthew that they found uh, so meaningful? Uh, well, I, I, I think um, again the whole, whole question about healing is a very it was a very important uh, question for them. Um, it's an important question for people all over the world, but uh, they saw these. Uh, uh, stories of of healing and these miraculous stories mm-hmm. of healing and and that was very powerful for them. They also saw stories about demons being cast out mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. so there was a lot that resonated with traditional aspects of African culture right. and and because of that um, they found. Um, they found these books um, intriguing, and that was a question that the missionaries had to ask themselves: Where do you start? If you're going to translate, if you if you're just learning a new language and you're committed to this mission effort, and you've got the Bible with all of the different books in the Bible, where do you start? You start with Genesis. Mm-hmm. How do you start with Job? How do you start with the Psalms? Or do you start with Matthew or Acts or Gospel of John? one of the epistles of, of Paul. Um, so those were those were questions that had to be asked. Right. And it's been an right. ongoing kind of um, question, in, uh, it, it, even as uh, translation goes on into different languages today. You know, uh, one of the relationships that was, uh, that were fraught with a lot of tension in this book are the relationships between uh, missionaries and uh, settlers, especially a guy named uh, John Russworm, who you spend uh, a very interesting figure who you spend a lot of time discussing and also between the settlers and the native Africans. Yes. Um, Why were there, uh, what made the settlers in particular different from the missionaries and why was there so much antagonism between settlers and Africans? Well, um, let me say first who the settlers were. The settlers were um, African Americans who were either free people, that is, had came from families that were, had been freed earlier, mm. or they were slaves, former slaves, who had been freed in a return to Africa. Right. And there was a there was a uh, movement. Uh, that was under the broad umbrella of the American Colonization Society that was run by whites that helped to establish Monrovia in what is today Liberia and that became uh, uh, other colonies uh, began to um, come in and be established by freed slaves and free people of uh, African Americans and uh, there was great uh, debate within the African American community uh, about the whole colonization uh, movement. Uh, Africa was viewed uh, by many as Mother Africa, and mm-hmm. a place where they could be free people away from the racism of whites, away from the oppression of slavery. And so uh, there was that attraction on hand. Other Africans, African-Americans said, colonization is primarily uh, a white project to, uh, to use the, what the whites themselves said, to whiten America. Mm-hmm. They said the racism was so powerful that they said there is no place in a, an American republic for black people. Therefore, it is necessary for us to do everything that we can to um, rid America of blacks. And the way we do that is by establishing a colony in West Africa that became Liberia. So that was 
the deep tensions there. On the one hand, mm-hmm. you have the longing of an oppressed people for a home and a place that um, is free from the racism and oppression that existed for them and the U.S. On the other hand, you have whites who are wanting to promote colonization precisely because of their racism and their, their fear of free, great fear of free blacks. Yeah. And so uh, most most uh, African-Americans opposed uh, during the antebellum period opposed strongly the colonization movement. But there were um, some who um, uh, wanted to return to Mother Africa and who did in Monrovia. And then this group that I'm focused on at Cape Palmas. Now, they thought of themselves as going to uh, Mother Africa, but when they arrived, one of the interesting things that happened, and really very, not just ironic, but um, deeply revealing of the character of the oppression that they had endured in the U.S., one of the things that happened was that rather than identifying themselves as Africans, they were very keen to identify themselves as Americans. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) And to say, um, we, in fact, are different from these savages who live around us. Uh, We uh, know how to wear clothes properly, and we know how to uh, farm properly and so on, in spite of the fact that the Grebo were great farmers, by the way, <laughs> huge rice fields. And um, But anyway, there was, this, there was this sense of difference between them. And so wars broke out almost immediately uh, between the settlers and uh, the surrounding, uh, both in Monrovia and in time also down at Cape Paulus between uh, the settlers and the um, and the Africans. Part of it had to do with different understanding of land and land ownership. Uh, the African Americans had uh, understanding of land ownership like we have here. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you buy a piece of property and it's yours and you do with it is within certain limits what you want to do with it and you can't have it just taken from you. The Africans had a much more communal understanding of land. And so um, they didn't think of themselves as giving land to the uh, African-American settlers in the mm-hmm. contract, but as um, they're having the right to farm it for a while. And then uh, they certainly didn't want the African-Americans intruding onto traditional lands of the Grebo. So there was great sin there. In that tension, uh, the Wilsons uh, very much took the side of the Africans and came to believe their own, the people, that, that their own slaves that they freed, they had helped them to uh, come to actually to Cape Palmas and to get settled and, and so on. But they came to believe that was a great mistake, and um, they, they wished that they had rather encouraged them to go to the north. Northern mm-hmm. states and to um, and to live as free people there. Uh, the, w- one of the things that was happening globally was that, and had been happening, was that European imperialism uh, was happening in the ni- in these years of the 19th century in a very aggressive way, and uh, both in say in South Africa and in Australia and New Zealand, other places. Plus, uh, white settlers were intruding and taking the land of the indigenous people. And what the Wilsons came to see, at least their perspective was, that the black settlers were no different from the white settlers in mm-hmm. Africa or wherever else, and that they were acting in an imperialistic fashion. In fact, they um, they compared what was happening uh to the Grebo with the with African American colonists, to what was happening with the Cherokee back at home, right in Georgia, right. with the white settlers um, taking uh, Cherokee land, because the uh, the settlers were uh, 
interested uh, in expanding and going into um, this new uh, new land that the that the Great Bow had, and so that was the result of a lot of attention. Now the governor at um, Cape Palmas at what was called Maryland in uh, Liberia, uh, because it was by the Maryland Colonization Society, um, was this remarkable African American uh, named uh, John Ruswarm, one of the first uh, African Americans. Some people think he was was the first African American to graduate uh, from college. He he had been a uh, a founder of uh, the first African-American newspaper in the country in New York. And he was, um, he was a um, brilliant man and a man deeply committed to a homeland uh, for African-Americans and Mm -hmm. in West Africa. And he uh, more more publicly, at least, than anyone else, Dick Palmas in the, on the colon, in the, among the colonists, was sympathetic to the Grey Boat. And he and King Freeman did much to um, uh, negotiate the differences uh, between them. He resented, he was a very proud man, and he resented greatly when arriving and finding. Um, right out on the edge of the colony, this mission station with this white missionary from South Carolina. Yeah, <laughs> and it just you can you can just imagine how offensive that must have been yeah. uh, to him. And while he and uh, Wilson cooperated in a number of ways, uh, the Wilsons were very popular with the Gray Boat, and. Um, and so played an important role when there were serious threats of war, uh, played an important role in peacemaking. So Rooseworm and Wilson uh, cooperated, but they were and they were hostile to each other. And Wilson's own uh, racism emerges at this point. And this is one of the mm-hmm. real hard things about this story, I think. And that is, in spite of all of his efforts uh, to escape the racism of his youth, the way it would pop up, and uh, and and in some ways catch him by surprise. Um, uh, but it was there. It was, yeah. it was rumbling around deep these deep assumptions from his childhood about right. whites and blacks. In spite of in spite of uh, what he would say about the brilliance of this scholar, that's. African scholar or the or the richness of African cultures and all, it, it would come out. And it came out with Roos because he thought that Roosworm, in fact, was uh, incompetent as a um, governor of the colony. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, and the colony had a, it was very, I mean, it's not, you, you, you know, from American history experience of colonists coming in, it's tough, I mean, to be a colonist, <laughs> go in. I mean, it's not not an easy task and it takes certain kinds of um, certain kinds of skills and Riswarm himself said to the colonization society back in Baltimore to the whites to said you know you just can't send anybody out here and expect them <laughs> to be um, able to manage on what is basically a frontier and so he complained bitterly about some of the colonists himself but nevertheless you see this um, tension emerging between uh, Wilson and the governor, and the Wilsons decide finally that they cannot that the right. the uh, antagonism between the Great Bow and the and the colonists uh, that antagonism is so um, intense that they can't keep the mission there, and so they move to Gabon. They move way down the coast. Mm-hmm. Uh, to Gabon and establish a mission there. Well, yeah. incidentally, uh, they they oppose another kind of imperialist. The French. <laughs> the French imperialists. The French come in. Right. The French end up bombarding the mission statement, uh, station with their uh, naval guns because of um, 
because they think the missionaries are taking the side of the indigenous people, which they were. But which they, they were. <laughs> that's that's another part of the story. Right. Yeah, that was uh, <laughs> just very sad. And uh, especially, you know, you mentioned uh, William Davis before, but in, in this part of the book, there's a major figure named uh, Toko, who is a tr- very tragic figure, uh, yeah. but is very, very sympathetic uh, and somebody who uh, the Wilsons obviously deeply respect. Um, uh, we've almost occupied an hour, but I, I did want to give you the opportunity to uh, just uh, tell us, uh, interestingly, you know, after about 20 years in 1853, uh, the Wilsons returned to the United States uh, once and for all. And of course, uh, you know, the Civil War is on the horizon. And it's sort of surprisingly for their views about slavery and the slave trade, uh, the Wilsons, or especially Layton, uh, chooses to return to uh, the South and to uh, support the Confederacy. Uh, how do you ex- explain that? Yeah. Well, uh, they they go to uh, New York, and he's head of the uh, the board of uh, politicians for the Protestant Church there, one of the heads, um, and he's quite a used. Um, Really, up uh, until um, late, uh, towards the approach of the uh, of the Civil War, Uh, and uh, really, there are a variety of things. It is a great. I think it's it's one of the really tragic parts of the story. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, He views the election of Lincoln as uh, the beginning. Uh, of a an aggressive northern imperialism against the South, against his homeland, and um, he really he uh, he's in this long argument with this close friend and cousin of his wife's, uh, uh, Charles Hodge, who's a professor at Princeton Theological Seminary and a very influential uh, man there. Um, and Hodge, of course, doesn't see it that way at all. Uh, but uh, Wilson is uh, agonizes about what to do, and um, finally um, he decides he cannot. He simply cannot stay in the North uh, while um, the, his family at home and his homeland mm-hmm. uh, is what he regards as under attack. From this uh, this aggressive uh, northern imperialistic um, regime that is now in control of Washington, and so um, and so he turns his face towards home and uh, he goes back um, to um, South Carolina and um, back to the place where he grew up and. Uh, he spends basically the rest of his. He spends some time later after the war in Baltimore, but basically mm-hmm. life is there. And the the troubling things about this uh, are uh, the way in which, just like for William Davis, the Graybow, and Toko, the Mapangwe, the way these old these old voices, these old traditions, call from the depths of one's being and shape present decision. Mm. And um, what I think happened with Wilson was these old voices that he did from his childhood and growing up and people that he loved and cared about deeply in his family that were just so powerful that they, that in spite of his uh, emancipating his slaves in spite of his fighting the and we've not talked about this but when he was in West Africa he was a vigorous opponent of the international slave trade yeah mm-hmm. in spite of that in spite of what he wrote about uh, challenge uh, stereotypes of Africans in spite of all of that these old voices uh, called him home yeah and um, so the whole question of human freedom uh, not just the not just the harsh question of slavery but the question of a person's ability to transcend to find some transcendence from uh, and and freedom 
from the contingencies of one's life, the fact that he was born in South Carolina, that he was mm-hmm. raised by this, mm-hmm. just the difficulty of, of transcending that. That is a that is a very troubling part of this story. And it's a yeah. troubling part of the whole story of the American South, of people of goodwill, whites I'm talking about now. Right. So mm-hmm. It's not black Southern. It's people of goodwill who are unable to um, escape the bondage of their whiteness and of their um, of this uh, traditions that they loved. Yeah. Well, as you suggested a second ago, uh, we have left a lot of topics on the cutting room floor just for the lack of time to discuss them. Um, I, I do want to thank you very much for uh, talking with me today. Uh, it is a uh, By the Rivers of Water is, a, is, a, is a, not only a fascinating book, it is uh, a model, I think, for historical writing, which in my opinion, I'll just editorialize here for a second, is, is becoming a lost art. Uh, historians used to write well, uh, not so much anymore, but uh, I think this book is... Uh, it is a wonderful read. So I, I want to thank you for talking with us today. Thank you. And thank you for those words. They're very encouraging. And um, for the chance to be in conversation with you today. Well, once again, uh, my name is Dan Kilbride. I'm the host of New Books in American Studies. Uh, we've been speaking with Erskine Clark about his brand new book, By the Rivers of Water, a 19th century Atlantic odyssey. And uh, on your screen, you will see a link to this book. Uh, it'll take you right to Amazon.com. Uh, I strongly, strongly recommend buying this book. So once again, uh, this is Dan Kilbride, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>